Well, this morning, we are going to begin a process of reflection upon the parables of Jesus. And I'm very excited to be in this conversation with you as we open up a whole new season in our church's life to be thinking together about what it means to make a shift. And to start the conversation today, I want to invite you to open in God's word with me to the seventh chapter of Matthew's gospel. I'm going to read aloud from the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, familiar words. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This is the word of the Lord Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? And now, Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart draw us closer to you, who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I have a number of people in this congregation who are role models for me in the faith. Uh, I think of them as uh, people I try to emulate in some way. One of those individuals is a man named Bill, a former trustee of Christ Church and one of the most committed disciples that I know. Some years back, uh, Bill approached me after one of our trustee board meetings and uh, asked if he could just have a moment to talk. And it became clear to me that what he was asking was for my okay for him to step down from our board after a long period of service. And I asked him what that was about, and he says, well, Dan, uh, I've just turned 55, and I want to shift my energies, and I want to really invest in a dream I've had for a very long time of trying to play on the senior amateur golf circuit. Now, I have to tell you this was an awkward moment for me, truthfully, because I really wasn't sure whether to get really excited about this or try to dissuade Bill, because I knew I needed his gifts here. I'd heard, of course, that Bill was quite a fine player, probably one of the very best country club players in the area, and I thought to myself, why is he trying to, to do this? I mean, how is he going to get a whole lot better than he already is, and why would he even bother to try? But I've been taught that it's bad to pour cold water on somebody else's dream, and, and I thought to myself, truthfully, 
If Bill wants a little more time to sort of polish his game a little bit, to chase after a dream, you know, who am I to question that? He will probably play a few local tournaments, discover that he hasn't been able to get much better, and he'll be back to attending board meetings in no time. So I said out loud this time, Bill, you go for that. That sounds just fine. What I did not particularly understand in that moment of conversation is what Bill had in mind when he said that he planned to make a shift. Uh, I, I was frankly surprised when I learned that he had built a golf practice facility in his basement. I was impressed when I learned that he arose at four o'clock in the morning and got up to work out, strengthen his core, do his devotions, also strengthening his core. I was amazed when Bill gave up alcohol to improve his focus and his steadiness. I was inspired when this guy, who I knew other people went to for advice about their golf game, was actually at that level of play, still seeking coaching for his own game. But most of all, I was stunned at what happened with Bill's performance. About a year later, Bill Sheehan Jr. won the United States Senior Amateur Golfing title. A short time later, he traveled over to Great Britain and walked away with the British amateur, uh, Senior Amateur title, then returned to the United States and once again won the United States Senior Amateur title. Year after year, Bill Sheehan Jr. was the number one senior amateur golfer on planet Earth. Take that in. Take that in. And then Bill did something that, in my view, is every bit as admirable. He retired from that particular circuit. Uh, he made the decision to to take on another very purposeful shift in his life, and he began to work at trying to become the best possible family member he could be, the best possible businessman, friend, and church leader that he could, and as some of you will know, Bill and his wife Lynn co-led the Take Root Initiative that had such a transforming influence and continues to in the life of our church and the world beyond. I, I tell you Bill's story today um, because I think it illustrates uh, something very important about life. A and not just about life in the abstract, because as we're going to see when we look at the biblical text we'll study today, it, 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 that example in Bill's life also has something to say to us about something at the very heart of what Jesus has in mind for every single one of you listening to me and for me, uh, myself, as I speak. In almost every significant area of life, becoming even more successful, fruitful, faithful than we already are involves making a purposeful shift. Uh, you learn to shift your, your weight uh, in athletics in a different way and you notice that your performance uh, begins to really improve. You, you, you learn to shift your focus from being known by other people uh, in conversation to really trying to know and understand them, and your relationships start to move to a whole different kind of level. 
Uh, you, you learn to shift your investments from this investment class perhaps over to this investment class and you may suddenly see a dramatic lift in, in your net worth. You shift your time and your energy from just trivial pursuits to really transforming pursuits and, and you rise to a new level of personal maturity and to influence upon the lives of others. The basic message here is that if you want a different and better result in any important zone of your life, then you don't just take a stab at it, you make a purposeful shift. You shift yourself in some way. You get this? Are you getting this basic idea? It's the first big one I hope that we'll absorb in this series. Well, because God made us and knows us so intimately well, he, he gets this about us also. He understands the particular shifts that human beings need to learn to make over the course of their uh, journey towards maturity in order to live into uh, their full potential. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to actually look together at four of those essential life-changing shifts that God wants us to make. And the reason we know these are shifts that he wants us to make is because when Jesus really wants to talk about something profoundly important, when he wants to um, get behind our defenses and get to our hearts and truly uh, bring about a, a transformation of our perspective and our way of being in the world, he almost always uses the device of a parable to do this. He tells us a story that expands our minds, that challenges our perspective, and moves us, uh, potentially anyway, in a fresh direction. And we're going to look at a bunch of different parables this month. I'm really excited about that. And, and we're going to notice some of the major themes. Maybe you've never really picked these up before. These major themes that tie together so many of the parables of Jesus. The first of the crucial shifts that Christ calls us to make, the one that I want to suggest the other three shifts build on, and I'm going to shift the metaphor here from kind of a weight change metaphor to a gear shift. A few of you in the room are old enough to remember the day when we used to have gear shifts in our cars. And you'll know that, that, that for you to go forward in any meaningful way, you have to get out of neutral. You need to get into first gear. And that first gear is the foundation for then moving up to the other gears of life. And all of the shifts that we're going to talk about this month are predicated on making this first shift out of neutral into first gear. And that shift I might describe as the move from dabbling to discipleship. From merely dabbling to being a purposeful uh, disciple. Now, I am guessing that most of us, within the sound of my voice here, are pretty decent dabblers. Uh, the truth is that many of us do a lot of things reasonably well. We do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but none of it profoundly devotedly or, or, or all that deeply. Uh, diversification is the American way these days. Uh, we express enough enthusiasm for the things that we're into that other people may not even notice that we're not into them all that much. Uh, I, for example, am a, a dabbler at golf. I, I had some extra time on my hands this summer, so I, I, I took a, a couple of golf lessons. I got out to the practice range a little bit more. I played a few more rounds than usual. I bought some new golf clubs. I got some very nice golfing shirts 
But my game did not move a whole lot in the direction of Bill Sheehan's. Why? Because I just did not invest all that much. The problem with dabbling is that it tends to lead to more dabbling. Because when we don't invest ourselves profoundly and deeply and devotedly in something, we tend not to get that much better at it. And, and we grow discouraged and not seeing the results, the produce, the, the improvement, we tend to move on to something else. We dabble in something different. I took a tennis lesson. Rafa has no fears for me. Uh, so I don't know if this is just the pattern for me. I know some of you are probably glorious exceptions to what I'm talking about. But I think it is the pattern for a lot of people. We grow accustomed to a life of fairly limited engagements and therefore fairly limited results. And it's not just in our hobbies, like golf. Some are offended that you could even call golf a hobby. Uh, it seems so much more important. But uh, we do this in a lot of areas and in some very, very important areas of our life. For example, some of us, in spite of having sat in church all these years, are still not very good at forgiveness. And life has thrown us a lot of opportunities to train on it. Some of us are still not very good at, 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 at intimate, caring uh, relationships. Uh, maybe even sometimes with people in our own households. Some of us are still not terrific at mentoring uh, younger people. Or, or in being generous with our various resources, or in understanding God's word, even though we've got stacks of Bibles in our homes, or, or maybe not very good at actually influencing other people with our faith. We have been uh, ostensibly followers of Jesus for how many years? How many people have we led to faith? Do you see what I mean? How how easy it is to go through our lives and essentially dabble at the most important things. And for this reason, Jesus says, I want you to make a shift. I have come to call you to shift. In fact, that's what the word metanoia or repentance is all about. It's about a shift in some significant part of our lives. Jesus says in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I have come in order that you might have life and have it more abundantly. The reason Jesus wants us to make the shifts we're gonna talk about is not just to please him, it's to fulfill our great potential to help us into life abundant and life eternal. So a very big theme of Christ's teaching is that if you want the life that I have come to bring, you must not let things stay the way they are today. A lot of Jesus' stories, as we'll discover, are about trying to tell us the way things really are today, to unmask the reality of the way we're actually living our lives and building our societies and treating other people. Jesus says, don't let it stay this way. Move, please move, from the way of this world to the way of my kingdom, from dithering to devoting yourself, from dabbling to discipleship, and, and the more you make the shift, the more you're going to live into that full potential. 
Do you know what a disciple is? Do you have a working definition for that term? You've been, many of us, we've been um, around Christian congregations. Do, do we have a picture in our heads of what it means to be a disciple? The biblical word uh, disciple in the New Testament is the word uh, mathetes in the, in the Greek. It, it literally means learner or even better, imitator. To be a disciple is not somebody to simply have head knowledge, it's somebody who actually does uh, the very things that, um, that Jesus calls us to do. Uh, Jesus says at one point, there'll be many on the final day of judgment who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not say all of these things? Did we not do all of these things? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. You know, blessed are those who do the word. Um, so uh, whether it's in golf or in marriage or in basket weaving or in spiritual character growth, a disciple is someone who is committed to getting better by aligning themselves to the pattern of some master. Some master of the craft, the discipline, the art, so fills the imagination of the disciple that they begin more and more to, to shift their lives, align their lives towards that pattern. Dallas Willard, who I think is one of the most amazing disciples of the past century, says that a disciple is someone who catches a vision of something better, develops an intention to pursue that vision, and exercises the means necessary to achieving it. Vision, intention, and means, V-I-M, VIM. Dallas once said to me, Dan, if you want to fulfill your full potential, you need to pursue VIM with vigor. Pursue VIM with vigor. Now Dallas didn't just make those ideas up. He learned them from Jesus because Jesus was Dallas's master and in a profound and and life-changing way. If you think about it, you realize how many of the parables of Jesus, and in fact the teaching of Jesus, is about the subject of vision. Right? He's involved in a conversation, and he starts out by saying, the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like. Translation, the, the, the way of being and living under the rule of God that I want you to enter into, that is your hope and your salvation, is like this. Let me paint a vision of it for you. And then he goes on to tell one of these unforgettable kinds of stories. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, He went away and sold everything that he had and bought it. In these and in numerous other parables, I think Jesus is essentially trying to say, open your eyes, please. Be on the alert like these people I talk about in my stories. Open your eyes. Catch a vision for what is valuable around you. There's treasure in your field, Jesus is saying. There's treasure there. Catch a vision for what is beautiful 
There are pearls to be seen and found, is what Jesus is saying. Catch a vision for what is important, like relationships. And so many of the uh, stories that Jesus tells are about relationships, and we'll plumb a few of those next week. But the big idea here is don't just drift through life. Don't just stumble your way along being distracted by all kinds of different things. Set your sights on the great things, the things that are valuable and beautiful and important. Set your sights on these things, these things that God has given you or wants for you in which you in your clearest moments know that you also want for yourself. Make these things your grand obsession. This is a great time of year to recover that vision. You know, we've just been through uh, some months of, of a little slower pace, I hope, for some of us. We're about to start a whole new year. The cycle of school is kicking up for some of you and for or your loved ones. Uh, the society itself is beginning to turn in the fresh ways it does each fall. This is a wonderful time to define a vision for ourselves, to catch a fresh vision of where we want to go, who we want to be. If you had to write it down, maybe you'll even do it this afternoon, what do you want to be different a year from now? What do you want to to be different about your life, about your relationships, about your character, about your influence in the world? What's the vision that you have for your own personal health? or your proficiency, or your uh, relationship with God. What is your vision of that? Describe that vision, write it down, color it in, talk about it with somebody else. Because until we have a vision, we're gonna be just constantly subject to being pulled by all of the winds and the doctrines and the the various uh, influences of this world. Secondly, As you head into this fall season, develop an intention, develop an intention to pursue that vision. Uh, Be like that person that Jesus talks about here, who doesn't just find the field, but the treasure in the field, but is so passionate about that, he goes running off with the intention to go and buy that field. Be like that merchant who saw that perfect pearl and then ran off to to liquidate his savings in order to obtain what he had seen. In other words, don't just wish that you had a deeper relationship with God, a better connection with your family members, a a greater influence for good in the world. Don't just wish that you had a, a better GPA or a finer career or an improved golf game. Wishing is for dabblers. Disciples don't wish, they walk. They catch a vision, they begin to walk. They get intentional about pursuing their vision. In Luke chapter 14, we read that large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And and you know this, Jesus attracts some serious crowds. He was never interested in the crowd. He was interested in the church that could come out of the crowd, in the community of faith that could grow out of that crowd. And so we know that very often, we see the pattern in the New Testament, that when the crowd would get too large, Jesus would sharpen the edge of his teaching in order to find out how all in people really were willing to be. 
And in this particular text in Luke chapter 14, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Or he goes on to say, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, won't he first sit down and, and, and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? And if he is not able, will he, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have who do not count the cost at least, who do not estimate the kind of investment that is going to be required for you to make the kind of progress that I'm talking about, then you cannot be my disciples. Now we know, of course, from the full counsel of Scripture, from the countervailing teaching that Jesus gives elsewhere, that he, he cares about families. His last words almost from the cross were about protecting his mother. John, take care of mom. Right? We know Jesus doesn't really want us to hate our families. We know Jesus doesn't want us to just get rid of all of our possessions willy-nilly. We, we, we absolutely know that because he gave us so many other instructions about how to use them creatively. Jesus is speaking in hyperbole here to shake us up, to, to rock us out of our complacency and make us really think about whether we're willing to invest at a very deep level to follow him as a disciple. Discipleship is different from dabbling. It requires commitment. It requires paying some costs. How many of you had a chance to watch little Coco Goff in the last couple of weeks? That marvelous young 15-year-old African-American girl who went so far in the United States Tennis Championships. Uh, remarkable. Do you, think, do you think that little Coco Goff merely wished she might one day be a tennis player at a high level? I think she just wished that. Or, or think back to the story I told earlier of my friend Bill. Do you think he just spontaneously woke up at four in the morning um, and then just decided, oh, I guess I'll just drift into uh, exercising and devoting myself in this way? Do you suppose those spontaneous or those remarkable followers of Jesus that you've known, you've probably been across the path of a few of them who just seem to be able to move through life with such beauty and grace and clarity and character, do you think they became that way by genetics or by accident? Do you really think so? I don't think so. Dabblers might think that, but disciples know that the great ones on this earth catch a vision, develop the intention to pursue that vision, and then exercise the means necessary to move towards that vision. In his closing comments in his most famous message from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, and we read it a moment ago. I want to bring it back to us. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and thinks a lot about them. Are you reading? Are you paying attention? 
That's not what he says, right? Everyone who hears these words of mine, what's the, what's the job after we hear? Put them into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Why didn't the house fall when the hurricane swept through? Was it because the homeowners were inside wishing that it wouldn't? Was it because they got lucky and the storm got downgraded to a category two? No, it was because long before the winds began to blow, somebody wisely chose to exercise some thoughtful means. And they painstakingly built their house on a rock bolted themselves to that rock to give themselves the best chance of doing well when the storms came. I want to be very blunt as we go into the new season of our church's life. We live in a dabbler's world today, and there's a high probability that without a lot of attention, you and I will be sucked up into it. We will just be dabbling at the faith. The stakes are so high, the moral calamities, the the dissolution and disintegration of communities and the fabric of humanity is so significant that it will require not dabblers but real disciples to make a profound difference, to begin to alter and and to recover and to renew the life uh, of our families, of our communities, of our nation and our wider world. And, and, and today's messaging in so many places is that it doesn't really matter all that much uh, whether you have strong priorities or, or where you go or where you choose to build your life or how you choose to build that life or what kind of foundation that life has. As long as you're sincere, as long as you believe it yourself, it's probably okay. That's the going message today. Any ground is probably as good as another, especially if there are enough other people like you settling there. But, but, but ask the guy who built his house on the sand how that worked out in the long run, right? Just think again about this. If I could impart one huge transforming truth to you as we start the season ahead, um, is that God really loves you. I, I, I mean, I don't mean he just thinks about you or has sentimental feelings about you. I mean, God loves the people of this earth. <laughs> Enough to leave the comforts of heaven and, and stretch his body out upon a cross. That's not dabbling. That's full-on investment. God knows what kinds of shifts we'll make for the greatest kind of life for us. And he will shake us and challenge us and send the storms, if necessary, into our lives until we wake up and take hold of the good that he wants us to have. And so he cares about how we build our lives. And it's important that we not just listen to his words, but we put them into practice. John Ortberg, one of uh, my good friends, puts it like this. He says, to love someone, to love, truly love someone, is to desire and work 
toward their becoming the best version of themselves. Uh, the one person in all the universe, let me just back up and say, we have a crazy notion of love today. That, that, that to show you I love you, I will accept everything about you no matter what. And whatever you want to do and be, I will just say, oh, that must be terrific. But, but Ortberg reminds us, no, it's to long for the best version of the other. Now, they've got to be careful and got to be humble as we go about that because we don't always know what may be the best. And we are called to love extravagantly even people who may be choosing a way different than we have chosen. But we never stop longing for people to be the best version of themselves. Ortberg goes on and says, the one person in all of the universe who can do this perfectly for you is God. Sometimes other people do not know how to love you into the best version of yourself. God does. God does. Because he has no other agenda. He has no unmet needs that he is hoping that you can help him with by conforming to these expectations. And God knows what the best version of you looks like, says Ortberg. Remember, he, he formed you in your mother's womb. He had a plan for you before the foundations of the earth, the scriptures say. God's primary will for your life, Ortberg goes on, is not the achievements you accrue. God's primary will for your life is the person you become. God is at work at every moment to help you become his best version of you. So as you go into this year ahead, catch a vision of what the best version of you might just look like. You are worth the project. You really are worth that. Maybe the best version of you is to become a great athlete like I've talked about today. Maybe that's a piece of it. Maybe the best version of you is to be a, a dramatically better student or a better family member or friend. Maybe uh, the best version of you is to excel in your workplace or in some other significant sphere of your life. All of this is good. All of this is probably some piece of what God might want for you. But please catch and please work to help your kids and your grandkids catch the most important vision of all. And that is the vision of becoming the kind of person who would make the most of their dreams if they achieved them. And who would be able to handle it even if all kinds of storms hit them along the way to those particular dreams. Jesus makes clear that above all else, God wants us to become people whose character and whose conduct bears a stunning similarity to his. And because we were having a hard time abstracting what his character was, he sent Jesus to show us in the flesh what our potential really looks like. This is the treasure. This is the pearl of great price worth committing ourselves to. God wants you and me and our loved ones to become people who can handle adversity and prosperity, who can handle conflict and criticism, who can handle resources and opportunities for influence every bit as beautifully 
as Jesus did. He does not want us simply to admire Jesus. He wants us to become little Christs, which is what the word Christian actually means. If you and I want to become those sorts of people, we're going to have to develop a real intention to pursue the vision and take up the means to cooperate with God's efforts to build that kind of life in us. So here's my final challenge. I'm going to send you on your way. Just pick one of the historic means of growing as a disciple of Jesus that have worked for so many others through the centuries and really lean into it over the next three months. Uh, maybe, maybe it's worship is, is the means that you want to take even more seriously. Uh, we, we estimate now that, that people come to worship Committed people come to worship 1.7 times a month. Up it. Increase that. Okay? Come and make sure you're staring into the awesome face of God and opening your heart to him in praise and in prayer and communing with his people. More often than that, make the shift towards that deeper kind of investment in worship. Or maybe for you, it's been a very long time since you were part of an intimate Christian community where the truth got told and where support for one another was given and where you studied God's word and prayed for each other. Go to the grow table today and, and ask, how do I get involved in a small group or in a Bible study or in one of our mid-sized uh, communities? Maybe that's the means you could take hold of. Or, or, or maybe you just come and go in this place and you You've got these amazing gifts, which if you put them on the line, could be transformative in helping so many other people here or beyond here. Stop by the serve desk and ask about how you could use your gifts more fully in this place. Or better yet, rededicate yourself to being God's servant, the ambassador of his kingdom. Uh, wherever you coach or wherever you teach or wherever you live and work in the community outside of this place. In short, what I'm just saying to you is, is make a shift from just dabbling to being a deeper kind of disciple and, and see what God does with that. Maybe you won't be senior amateur this year. You won't be the great champion this year or maybe even next year. Maybe something even more significant will happen in your life and through your life than that. But this I do know, if you really make this shift, God is going to work powerfully in you and with you and through you because of it. Because Jesus made it clear, I have come, he said, that you would have life and have it even more abundantly. Please pray with me. Lord, that's good news, <laughs> what you have said. That is such good news. Uh, we just ask that you would move in us by your Holy Spirit, that you would give us, Lord, um, greater clarity about the vision that we are meant to pursue. Keep us, Lord, from becoming overwhelmed by, by the muchness of it all, by a sense of just how far away we are from uh, whatever vision it is that you do give us and give us, Lord, joy in just taking hold 
of some means and intentionally taking some next steps and bring forth from that, Lord God, the wondrous transformation and good in us and through us that is the heart of your mission and your gospel. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.